Good morning, Incarnation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you a little story. Um, when Avila, uh, my eldest daughter, who's uh, serving as acolyte today, um, when she was about four years old, uh, I was bringing her to preschool. And just before we left our house, I was talking with one of our neighbors. And then I got in the car and Avila turns to me and she says, Dad, is anyone in the world smarter than us? And I said, yes, Avila, <laughs> there, are there are definitely people in the world who are smarter than us. And she didn't look convinced. And she goes, who? <laughs> and I said, well, I mean, you never really know, Avi. You might think that, you know, you're smarter than someone and then come to find out that they're a lot smarter than you. And I said, besides, you shouldn't really focus on that too much because there are, there are things in this world that are more important than who's the smartest. And she's like, like what? And I said, well, like love, for example. And uh, I said, you know, would you, would you rather be a really smart person that's really mean? Or would you rather be a really loving person that's not that smart? And she goes, well, how would you know that love is the most important unless you were smart? <laughs> and I was driving, but I couldn't help myself. I was kind of like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Avila, just answer the question, okay? <laughs> and she goes, loving. <laughs> and I was like, good girl. Now go to school <laughs> before you ask another question that I can't answer. I think in the Christian life, there's this connection between intelligence and love. Because in God, we find the fullness of truth and the fullness of love. Amen? Amen. So even though, in, in a sense, we as Christians would want to rank love as the highest, because in fact, God is love, we know that in God, love and truth, right? Intelligence and compassion are never severed from one another. Well, I'd be grateful if you'd grab a pew Bible and turn with me to our gospel text for today from John 10. It's on page 896 of your pew Bible. And heads up that last time that I spoke, um, I gave an altar call and my approach was definitely more preachy. Whereas this morning, I'm going to be a bit more teachy. So this morning, I want to talk about this connection in the gospel between truth and and life, between truth and love, between the truth that Jesus proclaims, especially concerning himself and the abundant life that he promises, particularly to those who believe. So let's start with truth. In our gospel, truth, it doesn't actually refer to like an ideology or, a, or like a philosophy, or like a political program. It refers primarily to a person. Jesus Christ is the truth. 
And Jesus's favorite topic is what? What's his favorite topic to preach about? The kingdom of God, which is not just like some kind of like vague utopia or like a system of values. Rather, the kingdom of God is primarily about the reign of God on earth through his messianic king. Our passage today begins with an appeal to Jesus for clarity surrounding the truth, for clarity surrounding his identity. How long will you keep us in suspense? The Jerusalem leaders ask him in verse 24. If you are the Christ, if you are the king, tell us plainly. In other words, enough beating around the bush, enough riddles and parables, rhetorical questions and messianic secrets. Who exactly are you? Out with it now. And Jesus responds by essentially denying their accusation that he has been ambiguous. It's not that he doesn't communicate clearly, but that they don't respond appropriately by believing what should be plain to them. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. Verse 25. And Jesus makes this same appeal a bit later when they're about to stone him. He said, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, this appeal to his miracles is a gracious move on Jesus's part. He's not trying to trick them or like be some kind of smart aleck. Yes, he's made some very extraordinary claims about himself. But in light of the fact that he's multiplied the loaves and the fishes, right? In light of the fact that he cast a demon out of a mute man, in light of the fact that he just healed a man born blind, right? In light of the fact that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, none of which could be done apart from the father as they knew well. In light of all this, Jesus is inviting them to revisit their presuppositions about his identity, to redo their sort of theological calculus, so to speak. Even so, just in case these signs haven't communicated clearly enough who he is, Jesus punctuates his response in verse 30 with his most audacious claim yet. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Friends, has anything more shocking or extraordinary ever been said in the history of the human race? This was not like some sort of Hindu pantheist claiming that his soul, like all of our souls, is one with Brahman. This wasn't the Buddha teaching a way to meld our consciousness into the cosmic consciousness. This was a first century monotheistic Jew, a people group that confessed their mini creed, the Shema, three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And here was Jesus standing in the temple of the Lord, boldly declaring to the Jerusalem leaders, I and the Father are one. This was indeed blasphemy if it was not true. And they would have been right to stone him. Let's get that clear. 
But in fact, it was true. This is the scandalous claim of Christianity that Jesus Christ and the Father are one. It's a truth that we confess every week in the words of the Nicene Creed. Indeed, it's a truth so scandalous that every generation has seemingly produced a new heretic who's ready to edit and refashion Christianity and leave out this I and the Father are one business on the cutting room floor. At the time of the Council of Nicaea, where our creed come from, comes from, the heretic's name was Arius. Now, when I say Arius, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Boo! All right, let's practice. And then we have his challenger, Athanasius. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, booyah. (laughs) All right, so it was 325 AD, less than three centuries after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the church stood on the brink of theological disaster. Never before had the Christian movement been in such a vulnerable place, not under the persecutions of Nero in the first century, which resulted in the martyrdom of the apostles Peter and Paul, nor even under the great persecution of the early 300s, a few years earlier under the emperor Diocletian, which targeted clergy and leaders in a much more systematic way than they did in the first century. As dark as those days had been, most historians believe that the the sort of extraordinary display of courage, not just among the leaders, but among the ordinary Christians, in the midst of suffering, actually strengthened the church. As Tertullian had famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But what the church was dealing with here in 325 was something far more sinister than the death of its key leaders. Namely, it was in grave danger of losing the divinity of Christ. Thus, the heretic Arius, he even wrote little jingles to deny Jesus's divinity. Arius became so popular that by the time of the council, most of the Christian world was already under his sway. A few decades later, St. Jerome would comment that at the time, the whole world groaned and was astonished to find itself Arian. Therefore, it was Athanasius, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Are you guys still hanging in there with me? Okay, good. Put your thinking caps on and leave them on because the Arians taught that Jesus was homoousios of a similar substance as the father. Whereas Athanasius insisted that the son of God was homoousias of the same substance, or as our translation puts it, of one being with the father. Now in Greek, the words homoousias and homoousias are differentiated by one iota, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. And indeed, uh, there were some in that day and many still in our day who thought that this theological distinction didn't matter one iota. And that's where we get the popular phrase, it doesn't make one iota of difference. But apparently, it did make a difference in the New Testament. So much so that Jesus was willing to be stoned to death 
as a blasphemer just to proclaim it in the temple. So much so that the earliest Christians were willing to be fed to the lions in the Colosseum, not to deny it. But if I'm honest, in the modern church, even in my own life, I'm not sure that the truth carries anything like this weight anymore. We live in a more enlightened age, or so we flatter ourselves to think, a time of tolerance where we finally learned that truth with a capital T just doesn't matter that much. We live under the dictatorship of relativism, where we're not so sure that the truth is worth losing your job over, much less your life over. We're not so worried about the threat of Caesar's sword as we are the threat of a knock to our college GPA. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about persecuting other people for not believing the same as we do. That's always been wrongheaded for those who follow a crucified Messiah. Amen? I'm talking about having the courage to stand up for the truth that we believe. Can I tell you a shameful and embarrassing story about myself? When I was a philosophy student in college, our department announced a special presentation that it was hosting at a nightclub in downtown Jacksonville. Without getting into the weeds, the topic was a socially progressive one. And right off the bat, the guest speaker looked out into the room and asked in this mocking tone, how many of you guys believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God? And I remember to my shame that I just froze. I was caught off guard by the question. I was wondering what the speaker was getting at. So instead of raising my hand, I just sort of silently scanned the room. And among the three dozen or so people who were attending, the only person who had his hand raised in the air was my dear friend Carter. And here's the really embarrassing part, that I had a part in leading Carter to Christ just a few months earlier. And so here I was sitting on my own hands like a coward. And meanwhile, this brand new Christian, a young man that looked up to me, was raising his hand while the whole room stared at him with contempt. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me for letting my little brother in Christ face the scorn of that room alone. Brothers and sisters, for Christians, the truth matters. The truth matters in and of itself. Since the days of Moses and the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. Since the days of this, thus saith the Lord of Israel's prophets, God's people have been called to be people who tell the truth. In the new covenant, Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And in John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the father for his disciples saying, sanctify them. That means make them holy. How? In the truth. Your word is truth, he says to the father. Indeed, Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. 
friends, do you have a habit of denying the truth that you know in Christ? Do you set aside the truth to avoid the displeasure of others or to gain some kind of perceived, calculated advantage? This is not in keeping with the Christian faith. For Christians, the truth matters in and of itself. Telling the truth is just a basic commitment. And this is especially so when it comes to confessing the identity of Jesus. Now, some of you guys will say, well, this, this, isn't this just theological trivia? How, and, and, and how can we even trust the creeds if the creeds are not in the Bible? The philosopher Peter Kraft does a masterful job answering this question. And his answer is quite in line with the 39 articles of the Anglican Church. Kraft explains that the creeds come from the authority of the church interpreting the data of the infallible Bible. For instance, the Trinity is the church's single interpretation of six main pieces of data in the Bible, which tells us, number one, that there's one God. Number two, that the being whom Jesus calls his father is God. Number three, that Jesus is God. He accepted this title from Doubting Thomas in John 20, 28. Number four, that the Holy Spirit is God. Number five, that Jesus is not the same person as his father, since he obeys his father's will. And number six, that the Holy Spirit is not the same person as Jesus or the father, since Jesus and the father sent him. Amen. <laughs> this is well put, because when it, when it comes down to it, when we come down from the clouds, all of this abstract theorizing comes back to the pages of the Bible itself. And indeed, it lands back on the doorstep of Jesus Christ himself. He is the one. He's the word made flesh who made the radical claim, I and the Father are one. And he intended to be taken seriously. Again, for the Christian, truth matters in and of itself. And especially the truth about Jesus. But Holy, the Holy Scriptures gives another reason for holding fast to the truth, a more practical reason. And now we come to the second part. Namely, that the truth is fundamentally connected to life. Jesus is inherently good. He's inherently for us. And so he can be trusted with our truth claims. Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger articulates this beautifully when he said, Christian faith lives on the discovery that not only is there such a thing as objective meaning, but that this meaning knows me and loves me. And I can trust myself to it like a child who knows that everything he may be wondering about is safe in the you of his mother. Thus, in the last analysis, believing, trusting, and loving are one. Simply put, we believe in Jesus and we trust that he loves us. To love someone means that you have goodwill for them, right? You love your mother so you don't want her to be alone on her birthday. You love your friends so you help them pack even when it's inconvenient to you. You love your enemy so you wish for their repentance and ultimately wish even for their happiness, Consider the goodwill of the good shepherd toward you in this passage. There, there are seven promises in verses 
27 and 28 alone. Look, with, look there with me. Jesus says, number one, my sheep hear my voice. So Jesus will speak to us. Number two, and I know them. So you'll have a personal relationship with the good shepherd. Number three, and they follow me. So Jesus will give us the grace to follow his way. Number four, I give them eternal life. And if that is not amazing enough, this means, number five, that they will never perish. Number six, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus promises to protect our salvation in him. And furthermore, number seven, the father who is greater than all will protect us also. No one is able to snatch us out of the father's hands. Now, there are many other beautiful promises in the gospels, but even if just these seven were the total package, I don't know what you would say, but I'd say, sign me up. I lose all to lay hold of those seven things. This is why the kingship of Jesus, this is what the kingship of Jesus is all about. The crucified Messiah is fundamentally a giver and not a taker. Do you understand that? Does your soul understand that? Does your heart understand that? Look down with me at the seminal verse of John 10. It's in the second half of verse 10. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let us never forget that this is Jesus' real intention for us, to bring us fullness of life. What do you want with me, Jesus? I want to give you abundant life true he calls us to take up our cross which is difficult and even excruciating right but that's only so that we may gain true life the truth of jesus is never arbitrary his truth is always in perfect accord with human flourishing even when his commands are hard for us to hear as a baptist pastor once put it when god says don't he means don't hurt yourself Orthodoxy, right belief, is always inextricably bound with orthopraxy to right practice and to human flourishing. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. By contrast, let us never forget the intention of the devil, which we see in that same verse. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, true... The road of the devil is easy, and many enter through it, Jesus says in Matthew 7. But what good is an easy path if it leads you to destruction? It's easier to eat a whole can of Pringles than it is to eat your vegetables. Right? I mean, like, once you pop... You can't stop. That's right. But that doesn't mean that you should eat a whole can of Pringles. It's easier to lie around all day than it is to exercise. But that doesn't mean that you should. I'm preaching to myself. It's easier to lust than to love. But that doesn't mean that you should. Likewise, it's easier to give in to the devil than it is to take up our cross and follow Jesus. But we emphatically never should. Brothers and sisters, do you not know that 
if you had the power to attain everything you ever wanted, but you lacked God, you would not be satisfied. Were you paying attention during the summer sermon series on Ecclesiastes? Might, or the power to decide for ourselves, freedom defined in that way, or to decide for others, freedom defined in that way, doesn't make right. John 10, 34, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, which refers to human rulers as gods or godlike and their power to exercise their will and thwart justice over those who they rule. But the same verse assures us that even the mighty will one day die like the rest of us. Do you remember the lie that the devil told Eve in the garden? He planted this, this sort of like pernicious idea that somehow God was holding out on them. That God was withholding some good from them and that it could be theirs if they would just reach out and snatch it. Reach out and take matters into their own hands. The serpent spoke a half-truth here, which is really a lie, saying, You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing of good and evil. This was a half-truth because they would surely die right away spiritually and by and by physically. And it was a half-truth because sinning wouldn't make them more like God. After all, they were already made in his image, but less causing them to fall away from his holiness, from his moral likeness. G.K. Chesterton has said that the whole truth is generally the ally of virtue. The half-truth is always the ally of some vice. Friends, this is the way that the lies of the devil work. They're half-truths. But why? Like, why would Adam and Eve believe the words of the serpent? Has God not shown his goodness to them? Had God not loved them and made them in his image and placed them in a garden paradise, walked with them in the cool of the day, gave them meaningful work, provided a perfect companion for them, and literally allowed them to eat from any tree in the garden save one? I mean, this was the very picture of human flourishing, was it not? But instead of trusting God's way, they did what we do every time we choose to sin. They doubted God's full goodness. That's what it's rooted in. It's rooted in a lack of faith in the goodness of God. They trusted themselves more than God, that they knew better than their creator what would lead to their happiness. And so they took matters into their own hands. They grasped and they ate and in doing so, they became their own gods. And ultimately, they became servants of the commands of the devil. Which was a twisted delivery on the serpent's promise. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. The life of discipleship comes down to trust. We all want to be happy. That's, that's in us by nature. But do we trust the hard road of discipleship is actually the road to life? If you think it's all supposed to be easy, you're going to turn. It's a matter of trust 
just as Billy Joel said. I have to give some boomer references here. Trust is like the connective tissue between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In what ways are you struggling to trust Jesus right now in your own life? Are you losing trust that the sacrifices you make for your kids are worth it? That you're not just wasting the best years of your life? Have you been single for seemingly too long and you're losing trust that sex was made for marriage? Are you losing trust that God's provision is sufficient and tempted to make your life all about the next car or the next home renovation and keeping up with the Joneses? The author Patrick Coffin summarizes the implications for discipleship in this way. He says, as long as we view our response to Christ's covenant as one big inconvenience, we'll never make his will our preference, our first love. As long as our theme song is Sinatra's My Way, we'll always balk at doing the right thing. To trust Jesus is to believe that his truth is fundamentally connected to his love. I don't know if you guys see this, but there are plenty of conservative pundits, especially on the internet, who speak the truth without love. And I have no doubt that they turn into cranky old men and women. Likewise, I see a lot of bleeding-hearted liberals that aren't willing to speak difficult truths to those they love, and they just become enablers. But in Jesus, we find this beautiful synthesis of love and truth, do we not? Do you have anyone in your life that reminds you of Jesus in this way? Someone who loves others sacrificially and yet has the courage to hold them to the highest according to the truth of God? If so, draw near to that person. For that is the very aroma of Christ. Another option is for us to look to historical mentors who combine truth and love to read their biographies and to imitate their lives. Tim Keller is a good recent example. How about Mother Teresa, who not only loved till it hurt, but spoke with true conviction? John Paul II engaged with some of the most controversial topics of the modern world, and he consistently did so with grace and winsomeness. A favorite of my kids has been to read the biographies of the Nigerian Anglican Archbishop Ben Kwashi, as well as his saintly wife, Gloria, both of whom have suffered much in this day for the gospel. Or look at the early martyrs of the faith, the elderly Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna, who knew the Apostle John in his youth. Or the fascinating account of Perpetua and Felicity. All these saints carried this, particularly, this particular aroma of Christ, this combination of love and truth that we find in him. Because, brothers and sisters, at the most foundational level, undergirding the whole superstructure of the universe, is the truth that God is love. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Will we abide in him and find the abundant life that he promises? 
Will we reject empty ideologies and sync up Christian truth with Christian love, realizing that these two attributes ultimately coalesce in the person of Christ? Will we see the gentle face of Jesus in the face of God? Rejecting the false deities of our own fears that cause us to try to grasp, that cause us to obey the devil. The disciples of Jesus will later say to him in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the father and that's enough for us. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus said to them, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Amen.